This episode of our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by Zapper. Zapper is one of the world's leading XR companies. Over the past 12 years, they've won numerous awards for memorable campaigns. They've democratized AR by making tools and SDKs that anyone can use. And they created Zapbox, the world's most affordable mixed reality headset. Most recently, Zapper worked with Unilever to create an enhanced QR code called Accessible QR, which enables packaged goods to speak to the blind and partially sighted. If you're thinking XR, give the team at Zapper a call or visit Zapper.com to see how they can help you on your XR journey. Good morning, everybody. It's Friday, September 1st. I'm Charlie Fink. I'm here with Roni Abovitz and Ted Chilowitz for This Week in XR. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Lots to talk about. An interesting, interesting late summer week. We got a great guest. We have a great guest, Michael Mack, Roni's friend from Europa Park. Uh, It is a tremendous theme park in uh, Germany that is, uh, I haven't seen it. Roni has been there. So perhaps you can uh, talk it up for us, but uh, it looks, looks fantastic. Very high tech, very clean. Yeah, um, uh, Michael is amazing. He grew up in the park. You could almost say he's a citizen mm-hmm. of a theme park. One of the first people I've ever met who grew up as a kid because it you know, was from his father and grandfather. And there's a castle that somehow links back to the family that goes back hundreds of years. So it's not like a, like like Disney's fake castle. It's like a real thing. And there was some mythology that like Walt post-war was wandering around Europe and this was one of the places he saw because it started from like these themed dinners around the castle and turned into entertainment and eventually became a formal theme park well this um, company it's it it, incredible being there it was just like wild and it was like being in a very authentic Disney with some incredibly rich and detailed um, rides and themes and things I had never seen anywhere else in the world so it was very very exciting Great. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. It's the end of the summer, so we had some interesting news this week, but probably uh, nothing that is going to change the course of humanity. I did want to mention OpenAI uh, announced after uh, a $540 million loss in 2022 that this year their run rate is uh, for revenue is uh, going to close in on a billion dollars. So that is pretty good, $28 million to one billion in one year. Yeah. So it's a and and I think that may be changing the course of humanity, Charlie. Because, yeah. Well, they uh, it's true because they they um, needless to say they launched their enterprise product. I did not know it was not already an enterprise product, but apparently they've got a, a special layer and it includes uh, premium access and all sorts of other goodies. Uh, and uh, you know they're selling a billion dollars worth of it, so uh, it must be pretty good. Uh, it they, only took like twenty something billion of investment to generate that first billion in revenue. That that is true. I, I think that's not unlike other tech think, companies that are ruling the world right now. No, no, but but think about it. Like the amount of activation energy to generate that first billion was was like in the order of magnitude twenty billion plus God knows how much extra support from Microsoft. So it's that, it's not easy. Seem, does that seem like almost the standard formula now to move the needle? Because you you touch this on the hardware standpoint. We've talked about this a number of times with mixed reality. It feels like, you know, as scary as a number that sounds, 20 plus billion to create and energize something that is going to be uh, sort of meaningful and potentially over a long return rate 
uh, return, um, you know, investment and look, look at what it costs to get um, Tesla off the ground. It's yeah. like twenty to thirty billion. Yeah. If you look at look at all the rounds of funding, and now it's creating lots of revenue and and big market cap, but like it wasn't a half a billion dollars or one or two. And if you cut it off at any point, that would have just nothing would have happened, right? Yeah, so it's like right. ten. I think I think you're right, Ted. I mean, some of these big new activations, you want to really create a market. You're talking ten, twenty, or more billion to make something happen. There's an Israeli company, AI Twenty One Labs. Uh, that just raised um, $283 million to compete with OpenAI. So um, uh, they are enterprise-focused as well. Uh, obviously, people are fishing where the fish are, so to speak. Uh, in other news, uh, VRChat and Horizon, um, the uh, two social VR sites, are both launching mobile devices uh, and are openly testing them. Uh, this is long overdue, in my opinion. Uh, I think VR Chat, uh, seeing what Rec Room did on game consoles, should have jumped right on that, um, and uh, and I think they are. And Horizon, of course, this is an interesting concession from uh, Meta that uh, headsets alone are not going to make a social place or social network online work that you have to have mobile that is what people are using all the time if you want them to engage with your content uh, consistently and long term it has to be mobile yeah. well, well charlie Florida. this is a virtual world trying to access the biggest audience right not limiting virtual one-to-one -to, -one to headset counts yep it says headset plus mobile plus pc plus game console that's billions of people we don't care what device you're in come to our virtual world that that makes better economics right I, I think so too and i and again it's still still unclear who really cares about horizon they need to increase their reach it's not gonna get there based on their traffic to um the quest community well and to your point charlie for the for the minority of people uh that are watching uh, the visual version of this on youtube versus listening to the podcast which is most you have a you have your vr chat uh t-shirt on today i do <laughs> uh, we have both been uh organic believers and supporters in VR chat platform as something that grew um, almost to the antithesis of what we were talking about, Roni, uh, on large companies going after a large shot, grew as kind of an organic sort of build out and creation of community and continued to raise small bits of funding along the way and still um, continue to drive the right sort of organic uh, use case and growth case for that, for that medium as opposed to buying their way into it. Uh, and I think they're an interesting company to keep an eye on. So one more story before we get to Michael. Roni, this one is for you. Uh, everybody who owns a Magic Leap One uh, got an email on Monday that said they would be discontinuing support after 2024. So that gives us a good long time. Who needs support? Does it is it going to matter to anybody who is actually using a Magic Leap One? Because I think most of them are either uh, aficionados of Dr. Grodboard I wanted to ask you about Dr. Grodbord and if you think that's going to go to the Apple device as well, um, since Magic Leap has essentially nothing to do with it. But uh, what does it mean at the end of life? I didn't. It doesn't sound like its life is going to end. Exactly. So, Charlie, can I let me let me um, unpack the parts I do Please. know. Uh, this is nothing official from the company, just like from what I read. And, and number one, um, the Magic Leap Creator Edition was a, a system for developers and early enthusiasts. Launched 2018. Every single tech company, basically, end-of-life support 
on hardware and software. Google does it, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera. And they do it without all the fanfare and noise we're actually seeing around Magic Leap. So they're like, somehow you get this weird thing. Some of the misinformation is that people are like, oh, they're shutting down the whole thing. They're not. It's it's the first generation product that in end of 2024 will no longer get support. Now, here's the question the real enthusiasts are are asking, and I'm I'm in support of them. One of the things that that's not clear is they're saying they're going to shut down the servers, which will brick the devices. I think there's one thing about you don't have to actively support, but it costs very little to have some AWS server with the files needed to keep what was built running and the things that were made downloadable, right? So I think the community that's enthusiastic, and, and there's always communities that love to keep, keep like old PCs, Ataris, God knows what going on. They're like, why are you bricking this? Don't spend any money supporting. But it's like a hundred bucks a month to keep like an AWS server running. Why don't you keep that alive? I think that's probably the most meaningful debate. Not that a company after like what, six, seven years of a Gen 1 device, they don't need to actively support it, write new OS, no more software updates, but the, but don't brick it. So I think people are angry about the possibility of like, it just stops working. I don't think they care if the company supports them anymore, but don't make it not work. Right. So, I mean, people who have old computers, like your old iPad still can kind of work. You can make it work in the firmware and there's hackers. So I think that community is very um, agitated on what they perceive as a bricking thing, not a not a expected end of support. But please don't brick it. That's the confusing piece of this message. Well, can't, they just, can't, can't they just put it up on Git? Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things they could do. And I think there's some confusion. And, and Charlie, you may want to reach out to Peggy and just like ask, ask for the official thing. Like, are you bricking or simply not supporting with new software builds anymore? Because if, if it is a bricking thing, then the community will actually be very agitated. Here's the confusion around the bricking versus non-bricking is in many uh, users' experience with the Magic Leap, including mine, and I've been you know, obviously an enthusiast. I was a huge, huge fan of Dr. G. I tell people that it is the most important mixed reality game you need to play to understand where things are going. And I've been very overt about that. The worry that I have, and I think a lot of people have, is the Magic Leap device for most of its life, Magic Leap 1 we're talking about, uh, had an insistence to call home, had a uh, need to put in you know, a, a passcode and it would kick up to a server to activate it and allow you to use that device. And very often to my frustration and other frustration, taking it around and showing it to people where I couldn't get easy access to the internet, I would often have to link my phone to the Magic Leap in a sort of a personal hotspot mode, which was fine. It was just a little bit of a pain in the ass, but I could do it. Um, my concern is that they haven't had a lot of clarity, at least in what I've read, and maybe there's more information on that part of the equation. So I'm hoping that if they do choose to end of life the device, which you made all the points about old Atari systems and all that's correct. If you still have an old Atari 2600, you don't have to connect it to the internet to play a game on it. Right. right. Um, the, the concern is that that whole system was built around that connected to the internet use case um, for security reasons and other reasons. They wanted to keep track of the data and stuff. Um, if, they, if they stop that, the device is effectively bricked for many reasons. Because if I just put it on and turn it on and say, I want to show my friends Dr. G because it's this historic, really important game. And it goes through this thing and says, oh, go ahead and you know put in your passcode and sorry, can't connect. And that's the end of it. That's a real problem. Um, so I don't know, Roni, if you have any thoughts about that or somebody people need to make a, a much more overt, you know, 
bricking means different things to different people. And if it has to call home, it is effectively bricked, even if it's not bricked. Look, look Charlie, this is our opinion as, as people who are not uh, involved in the day-to-day -day or anything uh, of, of the company. But as the founder of the company, and, and I know all the uh, you know blood, sweat, tears, and love that went into building it, I know there's like a lot of enthusiasts who don't want to see things like Dr. G create Tanandi, which may never be built again. They were so far ahead of their time yeah. um, that a lot of the folks wanted to exist. Uh, so that someone 10 years from now goes, look what I made. And it's a copy. And they're like, well, the Dr. G thing was a myth because nothing runs it anymore. Right. Um, I think I think people want it for a variety of reasons. And the fact that you have this plethora of devices that the Gen 1, which will be accessible maybe now to kids or schools. It's not that hard to stop that call home piece and put the things on GitHub and just let the community have fun with it. That's all. Like, that, that, that was the whole point gracious, in the first place. By the way, the goodwill of being so gracious like that, just letting the community, listening to developers, listening to community who love it, it's so easy to do. I don't understand why they wouldn't yeah. do that. Um, yeah, but, this was really out of the blue. I'm not quite sure I understand it either. So we should get some uh, comment from them if we can, some further clarification so let's let's bring michael in he's in the just coming in from the waiting room there he is it's gonna be a very interesting discussion roni has introduced me to michael we've had a couple of really interesting discussions michael is certainly aware that paramount is building theme parks now and uh you know, well, the legacy just, of what he's done oh here we go by the way it's an interesting bit of color as michael uh signs back in in the in the world of theme park lore and interesting stories uh if uh none of our listeners have ever read the backstory of Knott's Berry Farm and how Knott's Berry Farm came to life. Uh, it is a really, really interesting story about truly a berry farm. And uh, the, uh, the wife of Mr. Knott um, opening a fried chicken stand to support all of the people that were coming to get the berries. Uh, and then uh, a queue would happen because the fried chicken was so good. And they uh, eventually added little carnival rides because all the kids were bored waiting in line for the fried chicken. Uh, and before they knew it, they had a little micro theme park in front of the berry stand. And that's how Knott's Berry Farm got started. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting, interesting story mm -hmm. of, of the life of need of line management uh, for picking the berries became the reality. All right, here's, here's Michael. Michael Mack, welcome to the show. Thanks for dropping in uh, this afternoon from the continent. Uh, Roni has been talking about his visit to Europa Park since he came back. Thank you very much for having me. I was reading your bio, uh, which is fascinating, and, and Roni, we were just talking about it a minute ago. This is your family business, right? You grew up in the theme park you now uh, own and operate. Well, it seems and it feels like being a um, theme park native, so to speak. So I'm uh, most likely the, the only true Truman Show around the world. <laughs> um, the uh, Roni was talking about the origin story. Maybe we can start there because uh, it sounds like a really fascinating journey from uh, being sort of a local attraction to uh, turning into one of the biggest, the second biggest theme park in Europe. Plus the real castle. You have to talk about that, Michael. Yeah, I just was listening to the podcast. So, I mean, the family's indeed into the business starting 1780, but actually not. 1780? 1780, right. So we're 240 something years old. And um, myself, I'm the eldest at the eighth generation. 
And my dad, who actually founded Europa Park, is the eldest in the seventh generation. And um, we did start actually um, doing wood carpeting. So we come out from building carriages, wagons, and everything you can make literally out of wood. And um, in a city called Waldkirch in the Black Forest, um, we were known as the Mercedes back in the days of uh, building all what can move uh, clocks or like organs. And then later we entered the circus business to do in the wagons for the circus people. We did for the kings and the queens in Europe, we did the carousel or the carriages. So 1921, actually, we had the first uh, wooden coaster being built, and um, it was in Tivoli in Copenhagen. So um, as you know, all the theme park business inherited back in Copenhagen with a park called the Dürreshaus Backen, which was back in 1790 or 80. And um, so we delivered there, like in the 20th century, the first wooden coaster and uh, Yes, indeed, the rumors going around that Walt Disney was visiting Europe before he was um, thinking of making his own theme park. And um, the story I know of is that my grandfather got a call from Walt back after World War II if he would build a uh, attraction for him, which we un unfortunately, which he have turned down because he was um, fighting in the war and he didn't have good memories of that time. So that's where it all started. Um, now, there's a real castle in the middle of Europa Park, not an, uh, a fake one like there is in Disney World? No, there's a real castle. Uh, it's dated back on the year 1492. It was uh, built. It was an old water ca castle called the Balthasar, and it was a noble family who lived um, in that region. It was partly French, partly German, so it moved back and forth. and um, and actually, um, yes, we did. Well, the, the original story was that we uh, were supplier for parks around the world. And um, and Disney did travel at some point. I don't know. We didn't have Instagram back in those days, so I can't show you a picture to prove that he really was. But we, he was truly inspired by the Mac family. At least he wanted to buy coasters out of uh, the factory at McRides. And... Um, if he now was at the castle or not, I, I, I guess that's the best kept secret, at least at our place. Can you go inside and walk around? Yeah, it's still operating. So we have a restaurant in the castle. It's uh, one of the fine dining restaurants at Europa Park, and uh, it's still a part belonging to the main park. How, How many restaurants are there there? Well, we have several restaurants. We have um, four fine dining restaurants where we have real cooks um, preparing your your meal. All the other one are like uh, quick serving restaurants. So in total, we have about 60 outlets, but four of them are like in the same league, I would say, than, um, than the castle. And we are very proud to be the uh, one of the very few, I guess the only one having a two-star Michelin restaurant at one of our hotels. Amazing. Ch Charlie and Ted, one of the things I found very fascinating was like the, the depth of quality and detail everywhere. Um, which I think rivals anything I've ever seen at Disney, um, uh, you know, across some of the best best things Disney did. But, the, Michael, the parts I wanted you to talk about in this show were, first of all, the the really incredible VR experience where you get into the helicopter and, and you run around the space, which I think is one of the examples of, like, very well-executed, location-based, immersive VR. And then the thing I love the most, uh, which was your... Um, 
kind of this immersive food visual audio experience, which just blew my mind. It blew the mind of Richard Taylor, uh, who you guys know co-founded Weta, has won many Academy Awards for like the Lord of the Rings and Avatar. It takes a lot to blow his mind and mine, but Michael did, and it was insane. So well, maybe we could talk about the immersive VR one, but then this like next level thing, which I, w- I thought it was just one of the coolest, highest end things in immersive entertainment anywhere. So Michael. Well, thank you so much. I mean, we are not so used to get um, to, to get applause by um, internationally uh, professionals like you are. So it's it's really truly an honor to be in this podcast today. And I know that Ted, we had contact a year ago or so, yep. talking to um, Richard and um, Charlie as well, listening to your podcast. So it's it, it's quite something for me being um, a young kid in the industry, not the family, but. Um, um, let me put it, it that way. I mean, every generation tried to change the business. And as you can imagine, nobody was clapping widely their hands when I came around with XR and VR because um, my dad literally was afraid when I 2015 implemented the first VR attraction at Europa Park, which was on a roller coaster. Um, we named it Coastiality, so you would have a VR <laughs> on your roller coaster. And all the nerds went bananas and they said, Michael is ruin and the heart of roller coaster <laughs> business and um nobody will ever go into a theme park again because they all do digital so i think it was that kind of um distraction back in the days what brought us to the development where we stand right now and um i just finally i've have listened to a podcast uh well, actually to a youtube video of steve jobs and he said when he was talking to stanford connecting the dots Back in the days, I did had no clue which dots I was making up by bringing VR into our park. Um, now I have been in this podcast, it somehow shows me that the journey was worth doing. And the product actually, which came out, was a experience called Yulebe, and that's a free roaming experience. So we went off the roller coaster with our headset, trying to be immersed um, in a free roaming experience, and we put it. Um, under the um, inspiration of the void, quite honest to say, which was uh, back in the days invented by Brett Strider of uh, the, his park at Utah. Um, and um, I heard that there's somebody out there trying to have the we are a free roaming experience. And uh, so without seeing the attraction, we rebuilt it. And that was Roni was telling about. We have acquired an IP called Amber Plague, which is quite well known in France by the Lagardère family. And um, we're trying to um, put into not only the uh, tracking system um, by 80 cameras um, that you can track your hands and your feet, but we also um, put in like really haptic elements. And there's one where we have a a floor which is moving and shaking to, to um, to stimulate a um, 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 a flight with a helicopter, we had put like um, guns in there, which you haptically can touch, and um, so it's in a half an hour, fully immersed um, tracking VR attraction, similar to the Void, but just making it, I would say, uh, partly better because we have more haptic movements, which been built by the Mark Wright's factory. So there's roller coaster technique in it. Um, and um, out of that, we tried to invent a new restaurant of the future, which is called Adrenaline, which is um, based right 
next to the ULB Pro, and that's what Roni and Richard were doing. And it's a new immersive way of dining. We have a lot of people around the world come and visit it. Um, so you literally go from room to room, and it's a driving unit. So literally your table drives with you mm -hmm. from a room to another. And it's quite difficult to explain. But um, here I invite you to come over to have a look at it. But it's never done before. The immersion with video driving and um, a Michelin star cuisine. Um, free room VR uh, has, especially in 30 minute sessions, a notoriously bad throughput. So putting it in the park, of course, solves the utilization problem that standalone venues have, but it doesn't solve the throughput of putting, taking equipment on and off, cleaning it, attendants explaining how to use it. And then, of course, there's the core experience. So I'm just wondering how many people you could put through there in an hour and whether that impacts the profitability or maybe profitability isn't the point of that particular experience. Well, you did a great point, Charlie, on that one. And that's exactly what we are seeing as well. So when you look at the 30-minute experience, what we call the ULB um, Pro, there is indeed a problem, I would say, as a throughput problem, because um, we did a lot of research. First, we had a backpack on the experience. Now we changed them to the HTC headsets. And, and yes, it is a uh, um, um, problem, but I think the good about the Mark family, and I think Roni was mentioning it, because we were so or we are so successful being voted eight times in a row uh, by Amusement Today, the best theme park in the world. So we're doing a pretty good and steady um, main, let's say, like the core business is, is running extremely well. And um, I think that um, it is a paid research for us because I do believe that um, in the future, VR or even XR, it's about platform technology. I do believe that there's a huge impact being seen in a couple of years in, in location-based entertainment. Um, if you see the ULB Pro as a standalone business model, I think you wouldn't be beneficial. Um, but due to the fact that we can um, take the learnings from that ULB Pro into something which is the adrenaline or something which is the ULB Go, and the ULB Go one indeed is very, very, very profitable. We do about a... 80 to 100 an hour so that's quite reasonable yeah that is impressive so the technique is like very very low maintenance on that one because you don't have the tracking from the outside so you don't need the 80 cameras which we put in there um and so it's it's i would say like the big one was a research to see what can you do in the attraction of a theme park for tomorrow um and again, it's not a huge, huge loss, but it's not the same profitability that you would have with a theme park being visited by 6 million visitors a year. So you could completely correct the pro, gives you a hard time. And I would tell that to all the customers want to buy one. I mean, we did sell one to Hamburg Miniature Wonderland, the second largest attraction in Germany. It's based in Hamburg. So they're very happy with it, with a great throughput, but it's more or less an addition to the existing um, park experience. Is it an so addition? Is there a charge, an upcharge, an additional ticket for it, so people make an appointment while they're there? Is that how exactly. it how it works? Yeah. 
I, I do see the, you know, the, the pro, like a, a two-star Michelin restaurant with just 40 seats, and uh, but you get a different experience which you wouldn't get somewhere else. And um, let's say the, the, the pie can afford it to have, but uh, most clearly the better business model is having VR on a roller coaster called Coastiality and having the ULB go as a, as a short version of 10 minutes. And Char- Charlie, one of the things I was very impressed with, Michael, was like near Yulby, um was adrenaline. And I know uh, there's a lot of things that I can't talk about because Michael wants people to experience it. So I won't talk about those things. Um, but what I thought was amazing, it was like a remix of immersive experience, um, sound, visual, amazing things that transport you. So you're just like at ease, very science fiction like there was the whole theater of moving from place to place that was incredible. It felt like some kind of Kubrick movie, uh, Spielberg thing that you were in. So I, th- I thought like in terms of a true experience, and by the way, the there's food and smell, like that was all world mm. class, was one of the mm. best chefs on the planet. And if you think about like big headset VR, that's not going to work, right? With very lightweight, uh, you know, maybe Magic Leap type AR or, or where that goes, you can imagine this being better because you're not going to feel nauseous. You're not going to lose the sense. But I, what I thought was great was you were the community of people moving through a journey that was sight, sound, smell, that was just incredible. It's like one of the best full sensory immersive experiences I think you can get anywhere. Um, and what I thought Michael was doing really well, he also showed us the back of show, like the whole mm. operation, the computation, making everything work and how all the magic was happening. It was incredibly impressive. And I thought, this is how the future of immersive LBX will be done. One, people that really know what they're doing. Two, they have a core operation, like the theme park, that is a sustainable, profitable business. So they can they can afford to do these R&D iterations and get it right and do things like, you will be do things like adrenaline until they start to really work and pop. But the adrenaline was so positive, like everyone just hangs out afterwards. And there's like a place to hang out afterwards. And the whole experience felt like what we all want immersive to be one day. Um, and I, I, I was basically encouraging Mike, you have to bring this to America, uh, you know, bring it to LA, bring it to Chicago. I just think it will pop. I don't think anyone's had anything like that. Um, I, the closest we ever did at Magic Leap, we did one event with Sigaros. I told this to Michael, um, where you, we did Tonandi in a space with candles and food and music and all of it. Um, and that was like the closest thing ever I had, I, we had experience to what Michael showed, but what Michael took was next level and put it all together with all these other inventive things that I won't talk about. People just need to experience. But in terms of like what immersive storytelling can be, and, and, and Ted and I talk about this a lot, I felt it was also a great immersive storytelling experience. He went on a journey that was both passive and active, which is a very strange thing to say, right? Like movies are passive and and you want that low stress lean back. This had that feeling of, I don't need to stress myself, like the other one where you're fighting and shooting stuff. But there was the activity and engagement that I'd never experienced before in anything like that. It was just this really nice, artful blend. Um, I I thought it was one of the most original things uh, going on in the world today in immersive LBX. So anyway, Michael, I don't know if that was a question, but it was just sort of, Keeping praise on on your creativity and hoping that you continue to do stuff like that, Michael. Is is this? Do you have a Skunk Works like research group like Disney Imagineering, or is it all sort of on you and an intimate team? Another great question. Um, 
I, let me put it that way, Charlie, um, to um, try to explain. I, I, I think that's something what Europe is special in. I mean, when you look at the uh, theme park world uh, in Europe, particularly, you don't have huge brands for whatever reason entering the European market successfully. So most of the parks are coming out of a fair ground, um, long time history. So we have a totally different approach, I think, to um, giving the people a good time. And um, my grandfather, when he was still alive, he always told me, you just spend money if you have a customer. So he wouldn't start developing without a customer. And um, um, so answering your question precisely is, no, we don't have a research department like Disney does. Uh, and I'm fighting and uh, every day, literally, to get a little bit of a development budget. But I think what I've proven the older generation or the seventh generation, so to say, is by putting in those technology with uh, like UV Pro, even though it's not the most beneficial attraction in the park, that there is something um, for next generation to um, to to grasp on and actually to learn from. And um, we are thinking in, in 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 generations rather than in stock exchange uh, quarters. So I think it has a lot to do with the DNA being European and. Um, we're trying to give the people the best time ever when they come over to Europa Park. Indeed, we are a um, company which is also having employees to pay, and we're a company who have to make uh, revenue, of course. But having said so, and I give you an example, when I was walking with my dad through our first hotel, one of the biggest hotels at the park, Coliseo, and he, when I was a kid out of 16 years, and he told me, Looked to, to the two rooms and we went back and forth to a room and the other room and I couldn't feel the difference. And I was asking my dad, why are we doing this for half an hour? And he told me, look at the picture, which is behind the bed. So there was one time there was a painter out of Italy and he would paint the picture. And then the other one was like somebody just gluing on the picture because it was prefabbed by, prefabbed, uh, by any Chinese company. And he said like, do you see the difference of the two pictures? And for me being a 16-year-old, um, um, thinking about a weekend and going to concert, he said, like, no, Dad, I just see that the one is double the price of the other. And he said, like, well, you don't see it, but you can feel it because no picture is the same because it was uh, drawn by a, a human being and an Italian artist. So this lesson um, learned me a lot that it's that people will appreciate the quality. And I think... What they have when they go out of a UB Pro experience, they surely experience something they've never been seeing before. And um, they go back and say, that this is our park, which we love and which we will come back uh, the years to come and over generations. And we have 75% uh, of repeating visitors who come in back who are true loyal fans of the park. And of course, we want to surprise them by things uh, like things. So yes, it is a development. But it's not something out of the blue where you have like 100 people researching for the future. We'd rather put in a UOB Pro, make the people happy, and say that this was a part of our development team, actually. Uh, Michael's being modest, though. I, I'm going to say this, Michael. One of the things I always read about, and when I visited Disney World and Disneyland, we were partnered with Disney, um, going to like the place where Walt had an apartment and he would like sometimes sleep in there. But meeting you, and your dad, who like you were a you were a citizen of the park, 
and you're there all the time meeting and greeting people. It was like, wait a minute, this is like being with Walt Disney or Walt Disney's kid who lives at the park, knows it so well, and is constantly talking to everyone on the rides. And Michael has this, like this group, we got to meet them, this sort of creative brain trust group. Ted, it would be very, Ted and Charlie, kind of like a Pixar-y brain trust group, which I got to meet them. Really brilliant people. He doesn't need 100 Imagineers because they're so deep and so connected and so living the life that folks who are like detached from a park who aren't living it, like like Walt used to live there and constantly plus up. And I'm saying, I clicked when my head when, when I was walking around with Michael. I was like, you are that. Uh, it was very, very amazing because I'm a huge like Disney fan. And go, now, it, now it became a, a Michael Mack fan. To see that love of what was going on. And then he took me to all these secret grottos and hideouts and places like from, you know, here's where Paul, you know, this famous person came in and there's like a giant tiger on the wall. And I won't talk about that place, Michael, or this like thing at the top where we had the, like the dinner. And that was like, you know, all these, all these things where we are so enthusiastic. By the way, I think the lesson for me as a founder, any other founder, you have to be so into your company into your customers, love your customers. You can't you can't do what he does and, and, and his family does if you don't love the customers and audience. And one thing that was very evident, we were brought in to watch an ice show. And I'm like, I, ice show, I don't really want to see an ice show. And then suddenly there's like, we got some great sodas and popcorn and we're in these great seats. And all of a sudden a big dog robot shows up and is ice skating with this incredible visual effects thing. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> and it was like the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it was all choreographed so well. And the robot was really funny. Uh, this kind of scary big dog robot, you know, from from Boston Dynamics that is sort of like terrifying. And it's just this <laughs> huge fun. It felt like a Disney character coming to life. And I was like, this is genius. And you only know how to do things like that because they were so in tune with the audience. And I, and I just really love that constant feedback loop. Um, I, I think that I think there's a lot for them to learn from Imagineering, but I have friends at Imagineering. I think that still have a lot to learn from what Europa Park is doing. So here's uh, here's my question for Michael as I'm listening to you guys all sort of talk about all these pieces and parts that make up this world. And, you know, I think all of us here uh, have kind of a life history growing up in our own way in and out of theme parks, right? I grew up in Orlando as an Orlando kid. So as you might imagine, I have a legacy of spending a lot of time there and then working there on various sort of stages of my life. So I kind of know the ins and the outs of these things, which is part of why my passion is there. Nowhere near what Michael gets to do every day, which is literally live inside it. But my, my question for Michael is, where do you get your inspiration from? Do you travel around the world? Do you go to other theme parks? Uh, and maybe as a secondary question, what have you seen that excites you outside of Europa Park that you think, wow, that's amazing? Like things that you haven't implemented yet, but others have tried and experimented with that that uh, excites you and, and inspires you. Well, I think that um, due to DNA that we are as well a roller coaster producer, you do travel to other parks. And I do have a great respect of the Disney guys because they are amazing what they do and how they multi multiplicate their um, parks around the world with a high quality. Um, I think we couldn't do that because, as Roni was mentioning, we do live the park day and night and we try to be a great host. Um, so where do I get the inspiration? I think surely about the uh, roller coaster manufacturing company who is like building a lot of rides for the industry. So you know a little bit what's coming up next. 
And on top of that, meeting people like you, I mean, um, when Roni was over and Richard, we talked, oh my God, we didn't sleep a lot. And I think mm. we made best out of three days going to bed at three, four o'clock at night, sleeping a couple of hours and continue to talk. So I think inspiration does come from industry friends who are out there thinking about the future, thinking about what's next, um, thinking out of the box, literally. And I think this inspiration can come from everywhere. Uh, what I would love to do, I think what is an attraction where we are not good and is surely about multiplicating the experience you have at Europa Park because it's so dependent on the family. So if you would ask me, I would love to have anybody out there who would help me bringing this idea to different places without um, getting overexcited. But I think uh, Europa Park somewhere else in the world would be something great or even an adrenaline somewhere else. Um, or even a Yulby, or we're just um, about to um, um, starting our Traumatica horror season. So we're just uh, implementing a new interactive theater um, called Eden Manor, um, Baldassar's Secret. It's woven in in the story of our long history with the Baldassar Castle. And I was just speaking um, on my podcast with Daniel Lamar, um, um, the vice chairman of Cirque du Soleil. So I would love to have like people out there um, who just you know, taking coming with me to the adventure. And as well, we have a lot of ideas with Ronnie. And um, so I think there's so much out there, which I can't tell in particular. I think the chances just come uh, when the time is right. So um, I think that we are a very good place of being hosted um, perfectly, at least in Europe. I would assume we're one of the best. But we can't compete with big corporations who do have, um, or maybe that would be something I would be actually, now you're asking me, I, I would love to speak to some of the big manufacturers of XR glasses and uh, they, they come would come up and say, Michael, let's do something together. We changed the, uh, the software for you um, or we would uh, brainstorm or um, develop together with you the next immersive theater in the world so that's that's yeah. really something how many like. places have six million people a year coming through looking for amazing entertainment with the guy who runs it being very enthusiastic i, I think it's a missed opportunity for for people in xr so i have two last questions as we need to wrap up our show michael one is um what is your favorite attractions at europa park not just current but all time and why that's a question I get asked quite often. And I would say, like, it depends who I'm with. So um, <laughs> and I love all our attraction. If I go with my mother, I would certainly choose the uh, Pirates of the Batavia or the Arthur Ride, which we've done with Luc Besson. Um, if I'm with my kids, they are more into Silver Star and Blue Fire. Um, if I'm with Roni, it surely is Adrenaline and Yulby. So I think there's, for everybody, there's something. But... Um, Event-wise, I'm a huge fan of Traumatica, our horror event, and um, in the immersive theater we're about to create. Um, but of course, I'm a coaster guy, so I would say if you if it <laughs> if it should be the one, it would be certainly Blue Fire, a great coaster which I um, um, I was able to build 14 years ago, and it's the first one in the Mac history who has a looping, so that marks um, a, a tipping point in my life. 
Yeah, a looping sounds scary because you don't want any guests to fall out when you get up to the top. (laughs) You won't fall out. I can promise. So, no, I know. Of course, I'm I'm teasing you. One last question. So, you mentioned your kids. I'm excited to hear you say that because there's yet another generation of the Mac family that will continue the tradition that's been going on for 250 years. Well, I do hope that my kids um, taken the taken the the legacy on. I mean, my eldest one is now twelve years old, and uh, the other one is nine. So I don't want to push them into the business, but I think by grow by growing up already at a theme park, uh, it helps a lot to get the DNA and um, the heartbeat of the whole um, family and um, and just just before who did a great job. Well, um, thank you for coming on the show. It's fantastic to meet you. I will see you in Europe sometime soon because uh, uh, obviously I have to make Europa Park a destination, um, not just for the high tech uh, and immersive attractions you're bringing, uh, but also I really love the idea of the hotels. I was just looking at the restaurants before we started the show, uh, thinking I must be hungry this morning because <laughs> I felt like I could uh, eat the uh, digital content on the screen. Well, Charlie, I'm vegetarian, um, and they accommodated that uh, very well. But the food quality, I, I just thought was next level. You don't expect that at a theme park. And, you know, no. I don't want to bash Disney because they do a good job, but it was like <sighs> next level. Yeah, but there's nothing at Disneyland. Believe me, I worked for Disney for 10 years. I know that park inside and out. There's no food there that's great. The best food there is all right. Um, but if you're eating in the restaurants as just a regular consumer, it is very hard to find anything that isn't a hamburger that was made three hours no, no, ago. Michael had great food and great chefs, and I was just astounded. Ugh. Like, And what it does, the experience that you just have great food almost everywhere, um, even, even the everyday stuff on the side, it was like, this was just amazing because there's pride in it. The, the other last thing I, I know, Michael, we're going over, but I thought it was kind of cool to see that so many things that they had were real. Like when you go to a a Disney, again, I don't want to bash our friends at Disney, you know, the Imagineers will make it. Michael's team will comb Europe and find that painting might be 300 years old. That statue, which that's a real statue that could be a thousand years old, a hundred years old, and they comb the world for it. So there's this weird blend of this is real stuff with really good food and great experiences that just felt very different from some of the synthetic stuff we see in America. Yeah, as a as a dovetail between the the episodes that dive into this, and uh, Michael, you mentioned uh, our friend Ken Brenschneider from Utah. Um, I think this episode and the episode where we interview Ken are a good one-two punch if you want to learn about a style of themed entertainment that is relying on history and historical artifacts and the reality of making those into an environment that's a a themed environment that also kind of connects you to sort of modern attractions and modern technology, but through a lens of, as you walk around these places, these aren't fabricated castles. These things are real. They've been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. This artwork has been here for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's interesting that Ken tried to duplicate that in Utah and probably learned a lot from you, Michael, I assume. Well, I hope that Charlie and Ted, you haven't been with us and uh, just why don't you bring Ken with you? Okay. You're more than... Welcome to visit us at Europa Park. It would be more than honored. And thank you again for hosting me. I'm actually here in Europe tonight at your time. It's today. Thank you so much. That's our show this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a great long Labor Day weekend, and we'll see you here next Friday. Thank you. Bye-bye.